Well, our scripture text today is from 1 Timothy chapter 1, so please turn there. 1 Timothy chapter 1, and we'll be reading verses 12 through 17. Verse 12, And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly and unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance, that Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. However, for this reason I obtained mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show all long suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Father, in, in our, our homes as we're digging into the word, we ask that you make it effective to us. We ask that you would bring clarity and conviction. We acknowledge our dependence upon you and our need to be fed by your word. And we need to be led by your spirit. So we ask for these things today. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, it is a, a difficult thing for us to comprehend how incapable we are of any goodness apart from God's grace. It is a difficult thing because um, it's not a natural thing to think about. It's difficult before we are saved and even after we are saved. But today the Holy Spirit is using Paul as, as an example for us of bringing a biblical understanding of humility. In many ways we are not like Paul. Who can compare himself to a Christian like this apostle? Christ is everything to him. For to him to live is Christ and to die is gain. A man who so poured out his life for his Savior and for his friends and the gospel, for the church. We might say, Paul is, is too much of a good Christian to be an example for me. But actually what we'll see today is that an understanding of the grace given us levels us all before God. <clears throat> you see, God knows what we need, and we need more grace than we know. Related to this, directly related to receiving God's grace is humility. We look around today and we say, man, we need more righteousness. We say, we need more of God's law. We say we need more of this and we need more of that. You know what we need? What we really need is humility. We need more fear of the Lord and less respect of ourselves. That is the beginning of wisdom, as Proverbs, the book of wisdom, tells us. That is really the only way to start because we are fallen. We are dead in our sins, completely incapable of resurrecting ourselves. But Christ as we heard preached last week, was capable of raising himself, of putting down his life and taking it up again. 
You know, there's so much in this world that seeks to correct what ails us by pumping us up, saying, believe in yourself. And that's exactly the wrong thing, at least for our salvation and understanding our true state before God. That's exactly the wrong thing according to the Bible. So we need the Holy Spirit to get us on track. Well, I've preached two sermons on 1 Timothy, but it's been so long that even I didn't remember them that well. So I'll, I'll quickly share the main points of what God has taught us through the preaching of Paul here. First, we learn that Timothy was brought up into the faith by his mother and grandmother, who were Jewish. His father was a Gentile and probably did not know the Lord. Paul picks up Timothy on the way on his second missionary journey, and he was trained side by side with Paul. He saw the gospel breaking into pagan Europe, and he was with Paul in any of, the, of these difficult times that we read about. Timothy carries the letter to the Corinthian church that we read, and Timothy was stationed in Ephesus by Paul to charge them to, to stay on track with respect to doctrine. And in fact, Timothy is at Ephesus when he receives this letter from Paul. And one of the things he had to teach the flock at Ephesus was to use the law, to, to preach the law, but to do so lawfully for its intended purposes of constraining evil and leading people to Christ. <clears throat> there were some who were teaching the law, but didn't even understand it themselves. Paul gives Timothy a great summary, a great goal, that the end is love. And the law is not opposed to the gospel. It is the mentor and helper to the gospel. The law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are living contrary to sound doctrine. Look at verse 11. That's where we ended last time, and that is a lead-in. After Paul is given these things in the law in verses 8 and 9 and 10, he says in, in verse 11, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. So we're looking to the Holy Spirit to teach us today a very important lesson of the gospel, one that will make a, a difference in our lives and in the lives of many others, that we need more grace than we know, that we of ourselves can bring nothing to God. None of our best intentions or best actions will make the standard. We cannot gin up enough power to raise ourselves from our sinful states. We cannot pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. And even after we're saved, we still need more grace than we know. So that's where we're headed today, to reset our minds to the biblical reality of our complete dependence upon God and our complete inadequacy of ourselves. So let's look at our text today, verse 12. And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has enabled me, because he counted me faithful, putting me in to the ministry, although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man. 
we really need to read this carefully and fully to get an accurate understanding of what Paul is saying here. First, he thanks the Lord. And this thanks is not a one-and-done type of thanks. The Greek, as you know, gives us a good sense of the type of action the verb is conveying. Here, it is a continual thanks. It's a, it's a thanks that you'll never get tired of saying. Have you ever had one of those times where you received a gift? Somebody gave you something that was so special in your life that you just kept thanking that person for it over and over? Well, that's the way Paul feels. And we know that because of the Greek, but also because he says it in many other places. In every letter that Paul writes, he does two things. First, in one way or another, with only slight variation, he says that he was put into the ministry by Christ. And second, he gives thanks to God. Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Thessalonians, 1 and 2 Timothy, Titus, Philemon. In all of these places, he gives thanks to God. The only one that's somewhat of an exception is Titus. There's no direct mention of thanks, but there is an acknowledgement of God's work. So it's just a simple fact that the more you realize you need something, the more appreciative you are of it, the more thankful you express yourself. And that's what Paul has done. Look at this in verse 12. Our Lord who has enabled me. So here we have a recognition from a man, Paul, who was quite successful. But he recognizes where his ability comes from. Most likely, Paul was wealthy. And definitely, he was high in the ranks of the Pharisees. By the time he is writing this, he knows that he is, we could say maybe in, in uh, contemporary terms, he's president of the commission to bring the gospel to the pagan world. In other words, <laughs> Paul's got the biggest job ever given to any Christian. And yet he says, he, our Lord, enabled me. I want to mention something on a side note, related to humility, since that's what we're talking about. We, we mentioned that Paul gives his title in his introductions, that he is an apostle of Jesus Christ. You can see that in verse 1. This is what I want to say. It would be wrong for Paul to hide that fact that he is an apostle. It would be wrong for him to degrade it. In other words, while Paul is showing us that we should be humble in our person, we should at the same time uphold the dignity of our position. Our position is granted by God, no matter what the position is. And that position has some level of dignity to it. It's not to be flaunted, but it is to be upheld. So if, if our person is insulted, we can turn the other cheek. But if our office is insulted, we have to stand up for that office 
because of Christ's appointment. Now here's where we have to dig in a little bit with our minds to understand this. It says, And I thank Jesus our Lord, who has enabled me, because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man. Now I read that whole thing together because it hangs together. The break uh, between verses 12 and 13 can throw us off a bit. Remember that we tend to have a higher view of ourselves than we ought ought to. Uh, We might think that the Lord enabled Paul because of how holy he was. After all, it says this. It says, because he counted me faithful. But does that mean that Paul was faithful, then Jesus enabled him and rewarded him for his faithfulness by putting him into the ministry? Well, first, in answering that question, we have to realize that even faith is a gift of God. If a man has faith, it didn't come from himself. Abraham had faith. But Abraham didn't have that faith in and of himself. Turn with me over to Romans chapter 12. Romans 12. It is the reset or the reboot chapter of the Bible. You could say it's the format, the hard drive, and start over in our thinking chapter of the Bible. It's very familiar. But there's something to be taken from this. Let's read the first three verses. Romans 12, 1 through 3. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. For I say, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. Here's what I want you to see. In verses 1 and verses 2, there's there's a general call to renew our minds. And verse 3 tells us how to start that whole process. Look again at verse 3. Not to think of himself more highly than he ought to, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. So here Paul, writing Romans, the same author of our passage in Timothy, clearly shows us that we should not think so highly of ourselves as to think that we came to him of our own, our own inherent faith. These two ideas are are directly related. One, We should not think too highly of ourselves because, too, after all, the faith that we have, even that came from God. Now, before we go back to our passage in 1 Timothy, I want us to take a stop in Acts chapter 9. So turn back another chapter to Acts chapter 9, and we're going to read another familiar passage about Paul's conversion. 
It's important for us today because of the specifics that we're talking about. It's not often that we get a front row seat with such fidelity as to how someone is saved. So this is a long passage, but let's go ahead and read the whole section because it will be very helpful in seeing what's going on in Timothy. So Acts 9, we're going to read verses 1 through 16. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying. And in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him, so that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. Well, I'll reference the different things in this passage a little bit later. But for now, I just want you to look at verse 15. It says, He is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles. Notice that God's proclamation, Paul's being chosen by God, comes here. It does not come during his three years of ministry preparation. Now, there's nothing wrong with three years of ministry preparation. I think it's quite biblical and it's it's helpful, it's important for the ministry. And from man's perspective, that would be a good idea. We need time to see if a man is actually worthy of the office of the ministry. But here, from God's perspective, Paul was counted faithful. He was chosen as a vessel at the time of his conversion. That's important because some people will say that God counted Paul faithful during his three years of preparation. In other words, Paul is proving his faith. But actually, 
Paul was a chosen vessel for ministry at the time of his conversion. Okay, now let's go back to 1 Timothy. <clears throat> Still in verse 12. Because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. So here's the way we need to understand this. God counted him faithful at conversion and put him into the ministry due to the grace God gave him, even though Paul was all of those things, all of those things that are listed in verse 13. A blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, which is really a, a means of a violent man of arrogance. So that, that's, that's the first reason that we know that it wasn't because of Paul's self-generated faith it was a gift of God that he was called into the ministry. But the second reason we know Paul's being put into the ministry was not a result of his self-generated faith is that Paul is thankful. He is continually thankful for this amazing thing that he would be brought into the ministry. You see, you're not thankful for the things you did. You're thankful for the things that you receive, for the things that you are given. Also, I think it's important for us to understand that Paul is not exactly thankful for the office that he was appointed to. The word for ministry here, it's a good translation. There's nothing wrong with it. But sometimes we forget that ministry is service. Now that's the word here is a um, diaconia from which we get our word, the deacon and the diaconate. So it means service. In other words, Paul is very happy that he's been given an opportunity to serve. Paul's calling to the ministry is not a reward, an office for his faithfulness. Rather, it's an appointment to serve, even though he did all of those bad things. Now, let's look at this list a little bit. A blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly and unbelief. Let's spend a, a few moments on this word blasphemer because there's some confusion on that. The first thing that we need to understand is that blasphemy is a general term. The Baker Evangelical Dictionary of Theology says this, quote, in general, the word means simply slander or insult and includes any action or a gesture, as well as any word that devalues another person living or dead. Now, in a, it, it goes on. In a religious context, blasphemy can be against a person of God or against something that has a, a sacred relation to God, like the law or the temple. And, and that's what Stephen was accused of in Acts chapter 6. Acts 6.13 says this, They also set up false witnesses who said, This man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place in the law. So Stephen was blaspheming the temple and the law of God. At least that was um, the accusation. Now, although blasphemy is a general term, there is a distinction between the blasphemy against God and against man, as we might expect. Um, 
we can see that there is similarity and distinction. A good example is Exodus 22:28. It says this, You shall not revile God, nor curse a ruler of your people. We see there is both um, a similarity that this blasphemy, this this cursing, this um, uh, holding in in low regard, shall not be done for man, nor shall it be done for the people. So we have two broad categories of blasphemy: those against God and those things related to God, like the law and the temple and those against man. But within the category of blasphemy against God, there are two subcategories, okay? There's blasphemy, again, insult, slander, against God in a general way, and then there's also a specific blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And that last one is the unpardonable sin. Many of you have the Reformation Study Bible, also known as the Geneva Study Bible, that is a very good explanation, I think, of the unpardonable sin. Basically, since it's the Holy Spirit's role to enlighten the mind of believers, when His influence is deliberately and knowingly refused in a voluntary, um, informed, sort of snubbing kind of way, that is unpardonable. When this happens, there is a hardening in the heart. But before that, the heart is not so hardened. So, if a person wants to repent, if he's repenting, if he's in that process, if he's considering his sin and hating it, he has not committed this unpardonable sin. Okay, so there are blasphemies against men and God, which are bad but forgivable, and blasphemies against the Holy Spirit, which is bad and unforgivable. Okay? Now Jesus said, he makes it, helps us here, makes it clear, in Matthew 12, 31, Therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. Okay, so Paul here is admitting that he blasphemed, but he did not blasphemy the Holy Spirit. And more on that in a bit. Here's another place where we might be tempted to think wrongly. We might be tempted to think that Paul gained mercy because he didn't know any better. Isn't that the way we think when we read it? But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. You know, I remember when I was a kid, and, and you may remember this too when you were a kid, I, I had a rude awakening when I first realized that I was responsible for the rules I didn't even know about. Do you remember that? Some of you children may be in that stage right now where you're discovering this. Didn't it seem unfair? I mean, I, you know, it's like I didn't know I was supposed to do, and then you can fill in the blank. For, for me, it was pinching my dog's ears with the pliers. Nobody ever told me not to do that, so why am I in trouble for it? <laughs> and, that, and that thinking is still rolling around in our, in our mind. But Romans 1 tells us that we are still responsible. 
we are without excuse. Even the eternal Godhead's invisible attributes are clearly seen in the natural world around us. Ignorance is no excuse. It is not okay for Paul to do these things because he didn't understand. Also, I want to, to, to say something about our conscience, about what we think is right and wrong, because we do have a conscience, but that's not a real good guide either. Our, our fallen nature is to suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Rush Dooney wrote this, Man, in fact, may sin with good conscience, but this does not alter the fact that he sins. The criterion of transgression is not man's conscience, but the law of God. Cannibalism and human sacrifice have both been practiced as matters of conscience and much else also. We know that today, don't we? Human sacrifice in the form of abortion is seen many as being good, but it is absolutely not good because it is against the law of God. So let me just back up. What, what is the Holy Spirit teaching us here? He is not teaching us that sins are okay if you don't know the rules. Paul didn't receive mercy because he didn't know any better. He received mercy in spite of doing all those things wrongly. And that's why he's so thankful. Paul is saying here that I received mercy. That's his main point. And as a side point, he did it in unbelief. Otherwise, he would not have found mercy. He, he would have committed the unpardonable sin if he had done it in belief. So this side note is to make sure that we don't do the same thing. Those people who have been enlightened by the Holy Spirit are in grave danger if they do the types of things that Paul did. And Paul was, was blinded, spiritually blinded. We, we know that because what did he say to Jesus? Remember what we just read? Jesus says to, says to Paul, at that time his name is Saul, 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 why are you persecuting me? What does Paul say, remember? Paul says, who are you, Lord? And then Jesus says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. So, so Paul is trembling and astonished and says, Lord, what do you want me to do? You see, Paul knew about Jesus. That was his whole life's work and passion at that time was to oppose the followers and the teaching of Jesus. But it took a super, supernatural unveiling for Paul to see the truth. And so it is with you and with me and with every person who has come to faith. I found the shorter catechism question on effectual calling to be very helpful in, in helping me to understand what is happening at, uh, at salvation. <clears throat> so effectual calling means the calling from the Lord uh, for salvation that actually works. It does what God intends it to do. 
This is what the question is. What is effectual calling? And here's the answer. Effectual calling is the work of God's Spirit, whereby convincing us of our sin and misery, enlightening our eyes in the knowledge of Christ, and renewing our wills. He doth persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to us in the gospel. I just love that because it, it brings together the clear teaching of how a man is brought to the Lord with a calling from God and the work of the Spirit in a man's life. You see, we have received more grace than we know, and we, we need to remain humble because it is God who is working in us. Now look at that, look at that list again in verse 13. Recovered blasphemer. Let's look at persecutor. That comes from the word, the Greek word diok, uh, dioktis. And the idea is to proactively pursue, to essentially run after somebody. I remember when we were living in the Air Force, uh, sorry, we were living in the Air Force living in California. We lived on base. Um, they had base housing, and, and this was somewhat remote. We were pretty isolated. So I wanted to reach out to the people on base and start a midweek Bible study. So, you know, I selected uh, a Bible study and printed up some invitations, you know, to come to our house. <clears throat> and we, we went around one evening as a family and put them in everybody's mailboxes. Well, <clears throat> next day, I, uh, I go to work and I get an email that says there's a complaint filed against me for soliciting on base. You see, one of the lawyers, one of the military lawyers, was one of the guys that received an invitation, and he didn't like it. And he obviously went out of his way first thing in the morning to tell the chaplain that I was out of line and that I needed to not do this anymore. <clears throat> well, the, the, uh, the, the great thing was, of course, that those invitations were already out. And we started that Bible study and we kept it going. And one of the men who came was also a lawyer who worked in the same office with that, with that man who was running after me. Um, I'm not sure what happened between those, those two men in that same office, but I know the Christian lawyer was very thankful. That's a small thing. It's much smaller than Paul who cast his vote for murder, you know, pursuing after people. But the idea is that persecutors go out of their way. They run after those who are following Christ. Well, here's, here's a question for you. Given what we have learned so far from Paul's example, how should we treat those who persecute us? Well, you know, you remember Jesus told us what to do. He said we should pray for them. and We should do that. How should we pray for them, given the example of Paul's conversion? Well, we should pray that, that God would open their eyes to the gospel. Now, persecutors are still guilty of that sin, those actions, 
but they can be forgiven because in a sense they don't really know what they are doing. They, they know what they are doing in an operable sense, just like Paul did, and they are still guilty, just like Paul was, even if they haven't heard the gospel. But unless they have been enlightened by the Holy Spirit and deliberately blasphemed him, they can be forgiven. And if they are forgiven, then they become a friend of Jesus and a friend of ours. No longer an enemy of Christ and his church. So we need to remain humble because we'd be in the same place if it weren't for God's proactive grace. If not for his proactive grace. And that's what we read about in verses 14 and 15. Verse 14. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Paul tells us that grace was so much, exceedingly abundant, more than we know, and it comes with faith and with love in the person of Christ. That last verse, verse verse 15, is the verse that John Bunyan, the author of Pilgrim's Progress, takes to make the title of his autobiography, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. Now we know that John Bunyan was a faithful man, a man dedicated to serving God, even if it meant years in prison. And he's... He's arm-wrestling Paul for this title to be the chief of sinners. He's claiming it as his own. You know, uh, um, in, in my house, we have a rule that there's only one argument that you can have. And um, <laughs> at least an approved um, biblical faithful argument. And that is an argument over who gets to serve or an argument over who gets to give the last piece of, of pie. It's a, <laughs> it's a challenging one. It's one that I'm still working on um, very much. But I think that there's only one thing that we can reasonably argue with Paul on, or with John Bunyan, and that's trying to claim that we, no me, no I, am the chief of sinners. Now, it's, it's, it's not unimportant to note that Paul says this, this grand statement after he is saved, after he's been put into the ministry, after he has been counted faithful. Remember back in verse 12, and I thank God, uh, sorry, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has enabled me because he counted me faithful. Now that's not to say that Paul is still sinning the way that he used to sin. He is not sinning the way he used to. And Christians must be progressing towards godliness and doing works if they are really saved. But ours is to humble ourselves, to realize that we have not obtained the prize. And every single second, of every single day, even as a believer. It is all by grace and not by ourselves that we can please God 
at all. I'm reading Martin Luther's book, The Bondage of the Will, with my son, Ethan. And Luther is pretty spunky in this book. I can't really figure out if that was just the way they used to talk to each other, or if Erasmus, um, who he's writing against, is really that bad, or if this is just Luther's style. I'm, I'm thinking it might just be Luther's style. But he battles Erasmus over the same type of thinking that, that we have to combat. That we can, this idea that we can come to God on our own. That we can choose to do good of our own free will. Luther writes this in his book. God has promised certainly his grace to the humble, that is, to the self-deploring and despairing. But a man cannot be thoroughly humbled, listen to this, until he comes to know that his salvation is utterly beyond his own powers, counsel, endeavors, will, and works, and absolutely depending on the will, counsel, and pleasure, and work of another, that is, of God only. That's what we're seeing in Paul here. That's what his message is. Christ Jesus came into the world. It was Jesus' actions that saved us sinners. And Paul says that he is chief. You know, um, at the, at the um, prayer meeting last Wednesday, um, Roddy was praying, and, and, and he praised God for his humility. And that's a good prayer. To, and, and that's a good thing to think about. How God himself would humble himself and become a man like one of his creation. Come into a wretched world to save. To save me and you. We have an example of humility in, in Paul. We have an example of humility in Christ. And humility is what's called for throughout the Bible. We don't hear much about that today because it's about self-improvement or self-esteem or self-this or that, but the Bible says the only improvement is Christ's improvement. I have a, a commentary on Timothy by Philip Ryken, and he talks about how somebody tried to change the word, the words of uh, John Newton's Amazing grace. <clears throat> of course, we know that Newton wrote, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. There's a tendency today to think that people are not that bad, that we've just simply lost our way so Riken said that somebody tried to change it to this amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved and strengthened me. They just wanted to get rid of that wretched part because it's uncomfortable. But Paul, in the Bible, and Christ is the example of how we should think about this. Not the world. 
Look at verse. Look at verse sixteen. <clears throat> However, for this reason I obtained mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show all long suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. This message that Paul preaches here, and we see him preach time after time in Acts, was one of God's power in saving him specifically, personally. Back about 15 years ago, I listened to a program called The White Horse Inn. Some of you may remember that. It may still be going. I don't know. Maybe I misunderstood what they were saying, but it seemed to me like they were saying that we shouldn't talk about what God did in our lives, for me, because the gospel is not about me. It is objective truth. Now, I think what they were trying to do is correct this self-focus in churches, this wrong view that Jesus was there for me, rather than for his own glory and that we chose Jesus and when the Bible says that Jesus chose us, I think it was trying to correct those, those things. And I think they were trying to say, well, what we're saying is that humility is what's needed. But in doing so, I think they took away what the Bible shows us we can do. That They made me think that I could... I couldn't talk about what Jesus did in my life. My, my pastor asked me to give my testimony, and I said, no, I, sorry, I can't do that. I'll, you know, I'll preach the gospel, but I, I, I don't want to talk about me. <clears throat> and then, uh, not long after that, I listened to another audio thing, a, a, a debate with Dr. Greg Bonson. And I don't remember which one it was, but it was one of those where he completely smashed the ideas of his opponent, his opponent, the, the secular humanist. It wasn't even a fair fight. But in his, his closing remarks, Dr. Bonson didn't say, I told you so. He didn't say, well, it's obvious who won here. He did present the gospel. He presented the fact that everyone is a sinner and the only hope is Jesus. But the thing that I remember him most is, is saying this. He said, He saved me. And he put me into the ministry. He talked about the love that Jesus showed him, a sinner. He gave his testimony. And Paul gave his testimony. So I gave my, I, I now give my testimony again. And you can and should give your testimony. It's very important for us to be thorough and precise in presenting the gospel. That is true. But there is also a simplicity of saying that I was a sinner and Christ died for me and he saved me. I'm not saying that's all that should be said, but I'm saying that should be said. <clears throat> Joe Moorcraft says he doesn't teach evangelism because it's real simple. There's three things. This is what I used to be. This is what I am. 
And this is what made the difference. There's three things. This is what I used to be. This is what I am. And this is what made the difference. Paul used to be a persecutor of Jesus. He became an apostle of Jesus. And Jesus made the difference. So that's one application. Give your testimony. Talk about what Jesus has done for you. Now, for your covenant children, you blessed covenant children, even if you weren't a persecutor, even if you were brought up in the church and have never known a day when you didn't know Jesus, you were still conceived in sin. And you are still saved by more grace than you know. All of us can, can claim this statement. Look again at verse 15. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. We can make this our own and it applies to all of us. Here's one more application. When, when there is conflict in your home, conflict in your marriage, conflict in your work, I mean, I know that most, most of us are working from home now, but imagine there's still conflict. Remember this verse. Pray over this verse and, and consider Christ's humility, consider Paul's humility, and, and own it, own it for yourself. That's, it's a gracious thing from the Lord. And that will take things a long way in the right direction. <clears throat> now Paul has given us here, in our, in our text today, his thanks to Jesus Christ. But something as grand as this calls for what is really a benediction when <laughs> he's only getting started. And that's what we have in verse 17. Have you ever had something like that? You know, you see some, something so grand and glorious that you need to stop and praise God. My um, my son and my daughter really enjoy fiction writing, and 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 they'll tell you that the textbook way to do this is to not give your climax too soon. Don't don't peek out too early, <laughs> but. It's not so with giving thanks to God. We can do that always and at all times and things will go just fine, better than fine. So, church family, I exhort you to humble yourselves that God may enable you and put you into service, whatever service that is. We need more grace than we know. We need to be more humble and Paul is a great example here. So we'll end with his benediction, his early benediction, verse 17. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, to God alone who is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen.